right, you can you can get comfy. Good. I'm playing on it. All right, we need the kids. All right, so kids, I'm going to need you to be noisy. In just a second, this is your one excuse to yell in church. Uh, are we recording? All right. All right. Got to get this on record. Um, all right, so I won't be long here. Um, but uh, as you know, October is recognized as Pastor Appreciation Month. Um, our pastors certainly deserve um, appreciation um, and encouragement as much as anyone else. Um, year-round, but this month gives us an excuse to um, hijack the service and, and forcibly demonstrate our gratitude to them. Um, I don't do this to put them on a pedestal, but to give them an op uh, give an opportunity to show them a double heaping portion of honor, as we're called to do in 1 Timothy 5.17. Um, and I like the way the CSB puts it. Uh, the elders who are good leaders are to be considered worthy of double honor, especially those who work hard at preaching and teaching. Um, and in our small church, we've got three pastors, so we've got uh, three utility pastors that kind of do everything. Um, we, are, we are served well by Pastor Mark, Pastor Dan, and Pastor Todd. In, additional, uh, in addition to consistently walking out the kind of ordinary faithfulness we could all aspire to, they dedicate hours of their otherwise busy weeks to thoughtfully prepare sermons. They carefully and prayerfully consider the direction of our ministries every year. They carry our joys and our sorrows and do all of this while seeking to serve their own wives and their families well. It's not an easy calling. In fact, just last week, um, I witnessed Pastor Todd endure one of the most ham-fisted, unintentionally backhanded attempts at encouragement I've ever seen in my life. And by his, no, his own uh, discipleship group leader, no less. And, uh, and he's still here today. Uh, and just to be clear, that was me. I, I, mess, I messed that up. Uh, all kidding aside, these men label, labor faithfully amongst us, and the burdens of ministry that they carry for me and for you don't punch out at 5 o'clock. It's a grace-filled 24 hours a day, seven days a week gig. Now, I've done enough talking. Can I have uh, Pastor Mark stand up? Can I have Pastor Todd stand up? If you were comfortable with us, I think we'd all have a problem with that. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and, and because their ministry doesn't happen in a vacuum, and because these ladies also minister to and serve so many of us, can I also have Mary and Becca stand up as well? Um, Pastor Dan and Dinah, while you're listening to this on recording, can you please stand up? <laughs> uh, they couldn't be here today because they're on a well-deserved vacation. So, Dan and Dinah, please really stand up. <laughs> all right. Um, so, because uh, we're trying to get all of this on recording, I want your appreciation to be loud. All right. Got that, kids? All right. So, for, uh, for the next few moments, can we uh, express our appreciation um, to our pastors and their wives and for all the ways that they serve our church? All right, now we can, uh, we can let the workers and children be dismissed for children's ministry, and I'll turn it over to Pastor Mark. Well, we are also glad, grateful as pastors, for the number of quality leaders that God has given the church. We're not pastors, one of which was David deacon and discipleship group leader, and we have many discipleship group leaders and others who are serving in this church, and so like we can't do what we do without everybody who's doing that, because the church isn't really just led by a few guys, it's led by everybody pitching in and using their gifts to build it up, and so we're just grateful to be a part of this. Thank you for your encouragement, that, that was encouraging. I don't know if we're being recorded anymore, but Dan, hope you're encouraged. <laughs> But uh, thanks so much for that. That, 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 was really, that was really good. Um, well, I am Pastor Mark, in case you don't know who I am, why I'm standing up here. We are going to hear from God today, though, from His Word. So if you have a Bible, I encourage you to turn in it to Ezra chapter 9. We're going to be looking at different texts from, verses, from chapters 9 and 10 today, and uh, that will complete our, our study of the book of Ezra. 
Um, to, rec- to, to pick up where the story left off, so the Jews have been in Jerusalem for about 80 years now after the exile, and uh, they have rebuilt the temple as a place of worship, and they also have the Bible now. They have the Law of Moses because Ezra has arrived. And now five months have gone by since chapter 8, since Ezra got there, five months where he's been teaching the law of God and making changes throughout, throughout the whole structure of the life of the people there. So we get a report now from chapter 9 and 10 about how things are going, what happens next. So let's see what's going on. We're going to read from chapter 9, verses 1 through 4 to introduce it, and then we're going to ask the Lord to bless the preaching of His Word. After these things had been done, the officials approached me, me being Ezra, and said, the people of Israel and the priests and the Levites have not separated themselves from the peoples of the lands with their abominations, from the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Jebusites, the Ammonites, the Moabites, the Egyptians, and the Amorites. For they have taken some of their daughters to be wives for themselves and for their sons, so that the holy race has mixed itself with the people of the lands. And in this faithlessness, the hand of the officials and chief men has been foremost. As soon as I heard this, I tore my garment and my cloak and pulled hair from my head and beard, and sat appalled. Then all who trembled at the words of the God of Israel, because of the faithlessness of the returned exiles, gathered round me while I sat appalled until the evening sacrifice. And at the evening sacrifice I rose from my fasting, with my garment and my cloak torn, and fell upon my knees, and spread out my hands to the Lord my God. Let's pray. Oh Lord, we thank you that you've given us everything in the Old Testament for our instruction, for our encouragement in the faith, for our wisdom, and especially even there for our uh, expanded view of the greatness of Jesus Christ, who who was always foreshadowed in everything in the Old Testament and has become now our Savior in the flesh. God made man to rescue us. And so would you give Jesus all the glory this morning as we go back into ancient times and try and pull out from that what you intended for us to see about us, about them, and especially about Christ. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. What is it that makes a church a good church? I want to start with that question. How can you tell if it's a renewed community? The kind of church that Jesus said he would build, the the church that the gates of hell would not prevail against. How do you know if you have one of those? Well, a few things might come to mind that we might be looking for when we're looking for a good church. Maybe a building that's been taken care of, shows that people actually want to be there. Um, Some kind of organized leadership, things aren't chaos. The practice of the sacraments, there's communion going on, there's baptisms once in a while. Maybe every once in a while a great big celebration that includes good food and the whole community comes together. Or the availability of the Bible and teaching from that Bible. If you have all these things, do you have a good church? Do you have genuine followers of Christ? Well, according to our passage this morning, you might have that, or you might not. Because the returned exiles in Jerusalem had everything that I just mentioned that you'd find in what we think of as a good church. They had a temple for meetings. They spent a lot of time building this thing. They had leadership, priests, Levites, judges, magistrates. They had religious rituals 
daily sacrifices according to the law. They had annual feasts, the Feast of Booths and other feasts. And they had the law of Moses now because of Ezra. Now that's all good stuff. That's all progress in the renewal of God's people that we've been looking at now for several weeks. But the story doesn't end there. You've got chapters 9 and 10 also. There's more that the Lord wants us to see because as it turns out, even with all of that good stuff, there was sin in the camp. There was something bad going on. And it's their response to that being revealed that really shows us the heart of true renewal and where God is really at work. The bad thing is mentioned in verse 1. The people of Israel have not separated themselves from the peoples of the lands with their abominations. They have taken some of their daughters to be wives for themselves. We're going to go into some detail to see why that was a big deal, why that was a big sin. But more than that, we're going to see that from this story of chapters 9 and 10 is the, is the story of what the New Testament calls the repentance that leads to life. Because the people repent of that sin, and then they take actions to bring their lives into conformity with God's will. And this just shows us that renewal involves repentance. That's the lesson of the passage that the book concludes on. And it's a lesson for us today as individuals and as a church. Because when God's Word exposes something that's not right in our lives, our turning away from that sin and towards God and towards Christ is the genuine sign of renewal, of the work of God in the heart. It means we are being renewed after the image of our Creator, to quote from Colossians 3.10. So let's go to the passage. Let's see these things and learn from them. It starts out with the scandal of mixed marriages. The scandal of mixed marriages. Some leaders come to Ezra. They bring the report. People of Israel have taken some of their daughters to be wives for themselves. The holy race has mixed itself with the peoples of the lands. So they're saying, we've got a bunch of guys here among us who have gone outside of their own people, gone outside of the Jews, gone outside of Israel, and they have married people from all these different places, Moab, Ammon, etc., etc. And then when Ezra receives that news, it says he was appalled. Now, that word appalled means horrified, shocked, distressed, uh, that's the kind of language that we reserve for seriously disturbing things like another school shooting or 9-11. That's what makes us appalled. We don't get appalled over small things. We get appalled over major things. Well, Ezra is appalled over the news that the men of Israel have taken wives from the surrounding peoples of the land. Now, why is that appalling? Why is that even wrong, actually? Because what's wrong with a, a nice a man from Israel meeting a nice girl from Moab and uh, taking a liking to her and getting married and ha having some kids? You know, that doesn't sound so bad. Is this saying that there's something wrong with interracial marriage? No, it's not saying that. Not at all. In fact, one of the most beautiful stories and accounts in the Bible is the story of a woman from Moab who marries a man from Israel, and they have a son, and that son becomes the ancestor of King David and ultimately of the Christ. That's the story of Ruth and, and Boaz. So this isn't about interracial marriage being a bad thing. It is not. It's about interfaith marriages. Or to be more precise, it's about joining lives in the most intimate way possible to someone who worships false gods. The names of the people are groups very similar to the names in Exodus chapter 34. After delivering God's people out of Egypt, 
and giving them the promised land of Canaan, the Lord said, I will drive them out before you. All these groups that are mentioned here. Take care lest you make a covenant with them, lest you take of their daughters for your sons and their daughters whore after their gods and make your sons whore after their gods. See, the concern is not so much about the marriages, it's about the marriage to the person who will turn your heart away from God. There's no closer covenant than the marriage covenant. And if your spouse worships something that's not God, it's going to affect you. So the men of Israel have returned back to Jerusalem. They're setting themselves up to move away from the Lord, to turn from God. They've become okay with idolatry in their own house. And that's exactly what happened to Solomon years before that. First Kings 11 says, When Solomon was old, his wives turned his heart away after other gods, and his heart was not wholly true to the Lord, as was the heart of David, his father. And it was after Solomon's rule that Israel started to, to come apart, started to go downhill. That's all in their history. And now they're telling Ezra, it's happening again. And that's why he's appalled. I can't believe this. Here we are enjoying the grace of God who put it into the hearts of one king after another to send us back here, give us everything we need to, to have a temple, to, to restore our life, our faith. It's all been provided for us. And we are running after other gods? It's only been 80 years. It was like Moses coming down from the mountain with the tablets in his hand, and he finds the people worshiping a golden calf. It was devastating. Now, it wasn't all bad news, because on the bright side, it was the leaders who came to Ezra of their own accord to confess this, because they were also doing it. It said it was priests and Levites in the mix. It was the officials, the chief leaders. They were doing it. But they're the ones who come to Ezra and they told on themselves. <laughs> it wasn't Ezra finding this out and saying, what are you doing? They were coming to Ezra. He didn't know. So that's good news. It means that in those five months when he brought the word, they started to realize, uh-oh, we've got a big problem. We've done something really wrong. And there, there was conviction and so they came to him and said, here's what happened. <clears throat> so there's good news. There's still light at the end of the tunnel here. We'll talk more about their consciences being convicted and, and contrition. But let's, before we go to the next part, to his prayer, let me just make an observation from this. Obviously, we could talk about implications for who you marry. That a Christian should not marry someone who doesn't love the Lord also. Because the same thing can happen to you in that situation. But I think there's another lesson here that's not to be missed. And this applies to everybody, married or not. It's the reality that good circumstances don't make you a renewed person. It's the heart that has to change. Good circumstances don't make you a renewed person. The heart has to change. These people came back to Jerusalem. They had everything they needed to follow the Lord. Three different kings showed them favor over 80 years. They had everything they needed to build the temple, renew their faith, become all that God wanted them to be. And still, they went back to tolerating idolatry in their own houses. They were still unfaithful. So why is that when you've had everything handed to you? Because the problem wasn't political, or else having the king's favor would have solved it. That has implications on how much hope we put in elections, by the way. It won't make the church better if you get somebody elected that you want. It's deeper than that. It's not a political problem. The problem isn't resources, because those were supplied. 
That has implications on how much hope we put into our finances and being financially set. No, the problem is as old as humanity, which is our tendency to wander from God, to do what's right in our own eyes, to find our own way to happiness. You can have everything in life the way you want it. And that itself will not renew you. The change has to be a heart change. Sin is a heart issue. And deep renewal happens when we see it and own it in ourselves, which is what happened when Ezra opened the Bible to these people. They heard the scriptures. They looked at their lives. They realized, I've sinned. I need help. And that's what we need to do today in order to have that life that Jesus came to give us. The good news of the gospel is that Jesus died for our sins, bearing the penalty for that sin that we deserve. Those who trust in Him as Savior are forgiven and renewed. We become a new creation, but it all begins with admitting the bad news first, with admitting, I have a problem, and I need Jesus to fix it. Ezra brought the law, the people were convicted, and this is where the renewal really begins in the heart. It's the kindness of God that leads us to repentance, Paul said. And repentance leads to the God who forgives the contrite heart. And that gets to the next part of the story, which is the prayer of contrition. The prayer of contrition. Uh, Ezra sat appalled, but he didn't stop there. He turned to the God whose law had been broken. He prayed. He wept. The people joined him in his sorrow over sin. And so let's just read verses 5 through chapter 10, verse 1. This is a little longer section, but this is now Ezra as he's responding to this bad news, and he's just seeking God over it. He says, Oh, my God, I am ashamed and blush to lift my face to you, my God. For our iniquities have risen higher than our heads, and our guilt has mounted up to the heavens. From the days of our fathers to this day, we have been in great guilt. And for our iniquities, our kings, we, for our iniquities, we, our kings and our priests, have been given into the hand of the kings of the lands to the sword, to captivity, to plundering, and to utter shame as it is today. But now for a brief moment, has, favor has been shown by the Lord our God to leave us a remnant and to give us a secure hold within this holy place that our God might brighten our eyes and grant us a little reviving in our slavery, for we are slaves. Yet our God has not forsaken us in our slavery, but has extended to us his steadfast love before the kings of Persia to grant us some reviving, to set up the house of our God, to repair its ruins, and to give us protection in Judea and Jerusalem. And now, O oh our God, what shall we say after this? For we have forsaken your commandments which you commanded by your servants, the prophets, saying, the land that you are entering to take possession of it is a land impure with the impurity of the peoples of the lands, with their abominations that have filled it from, in, from end to end with their uncleanness. Therefore, do not give your daughters to their sons, neither take their daughters for your sons, and, never seek, and neither seek their peace or prosperity, that you may be strong and eat the good of the land and leave it for an inheritance to your children forever. And after all that has come upon us for our evil deeds and for our great guilt, seeing that you, our God, have punished us less than our iniquities deserved and have given us such a remnant as this, shall we break your commandments again and intermarry with intermarry with the peoples who practice these abominations. Would you not be angry with us until you consumed us so that there should be no remnant nor any to escape? O oh Lord, the God of Israel, you are just, for we are left a remnant that has escaped as it is today. Behold, we are before you in our guilt, for none can stand before you 
because of this. While Ezra prayed and made confession, weeping and casting himself down before the house of God, a very great assembly of men, women, and children gathered to him out of Israel, for the people wept bitterly. That prayer is striking because of two themes in it. One theme is contrition for sin, and the other theme is God's grace to sinful people, and they're together. Let's take the first theme of contrition. You'll notice there's no sugarcoating of the situation here. No playing down the severity of the offenses. This is brutally honest admission of serious wrongdoing. He says, I'm ashamed. I blush. Those are visceral, emotional reactions to the sin. He doesn't say, yeah, this isn't so great. We shouldn't do that anymore. No, no, no. He feels this down to his bones, and the people feel the same way. They weep with him. They gather around him, weeping bitterly. They're struck to the heart. He says, our guilt has mounted up to the heavens. I mean, it's not a little bit of guilt. It's way up there. It's great guilt. We've forsaken your commandments. No one can stand before you because of this. That's an unreserved ownership of having done what ought not to be done. Guilty as charged. No defense, no rationalization, no mistakes were made, no, oh, nobody's perfect. No, no, this is, this is the language of the courtroom. This is the violation of God's law. This is the admission of legal guilt. Guilty as charged here. He says their unlawful marriages um, that brought about all these things that he said happened to Israel historically delivered over to kings and so forth. You, our God, have punished us less than our iniquities deserved. Wow. Less. So being... Carried into captivity, having your city destroyed is less than we deserve? That's a lot. He doesn't say, well, you know, it's, it's not that bad, right? No, you've punished us less than we deserve historically. He says, would you not be angry with us until you consumed us so that there should be no remnant? In other words, God, you would be within your rights to wipe us out completely, to have nobody left to just be done with the whole thing. You'd be within your rights to do that because of what we're doing. We're doing the same thing we've always been doing for centuries. Compare that with how, how sometimes we feel about our own wrongdoing. I mean, does this sound a little bit over the top? Like, you know, is this a little extreme? Is this hyperbole? I mean, surely it can't be that bad, right? I mean, sometimes we think that about our, our own sin. I mean, these are just marriages we're talking about, right? And probably happy marriage. No, nobody's died here. This isn't so terrible that we could be consumed, that we could die under God's judgment. Surely God would never do that as a reaction to our sin, except that God did exactly that to the one who bore our sins to His beloved Son, Jesus. Isaiah says, He was wounded for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. He was cut off out of the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of my people. What God did to Jesus on the cross was pour out His wrath for their sins and our sins because that's what they deserve. We've got to let that land on us. Ezra's not talking hyperbole. He's being honest. Our sin is that bad. Jesus said about something that we would consider a no big deal. He said, whoever says you fool and insult will be liable to the hell of fire. Whoa. 
Even when our sin doesn't seem big to us, it's still a big deal because of who it is against. It is against the holy and righteous God, our creator. We're accountable to him. Those are his laws, not some man-made law. God is within his rights if he would consume us, every one of us. That's what sin deserves. But Jesus took that punishment for those who trust him for forgiveness, for those who see his death as being our death for our sin. What's the point of dwelling on all this? It's because renewal involves repentance, and repentance involves owning the sinfulness of our heart in full, being of contrite heart. That's a heart that's really being transformed into the image of our Creator. When we have the same revulsion against sin that he does. The heart that owns the bad news is the heart that's going to appreciate the good news fully. Thomas Wilcox said it long ago in his little pamphlet, Honey Out of the Rock. The greatness of Christ's merit is not known, but to a poor soul in the greatest distress. Slight convictions will have but a low prizing of Christ's blood and merits. In other words, the gospel is only meaningful and life-giving to the soul that has known distress over our fallen condition and looks to Christ for forgiveness. Freedom is most appreciated by those who have been in prison. Good health is most appreciated by those who have been sick. And God's grace is most appreciated by those who know they deserve punishment. And in Christ Jesus, we do experience that grace. And that comes to the second theme in this prayer of contrition, which is the grace of God. Ezra says, yeah, God's people have always been this way. We've been wayward. We've been sinful. But despite all of that, there's another stream that's going along, that stream of our unfaithfulness, which is the stream of God's steadfast love and His mercy for a brief moment. 80 years, which is brief in God's timetable. Favor has been shown to us by the Lord our God, despite our history, to leave us a remnant and to give us a secure hold in this holy place, that our God may brighten our eyes and grant us reviving in our slavery. Our God has not forsaken us in our slavery. He has extended to us His steadfast love. So this is our God. This is us, but this is our God. And even the fact that we're still here having this conversation is steadfast love, grace, mercy, pursuing us, goodness and loving kindness, pursuing us. Ezra hasn't lost sight of that fact, and so he's strengthened to talk to this God and to express his appreciation for who God is despite who they are. And with the hope of mercy, that is your record, Lord. Your record is mercy. And that's all we have to go on right here, right now, is your mercy. And he's seeking it. And he's seeking it on behalf of the people because you'll notice that he's somewhat of an intercessor here who is in solidarity with his people. Um, Ezra wasn't personally guilty of any mixed marriage with idol worshipers, and yet he prays as if the guilt was his own. He says, we have been in great guilt. Not they, we he speaks of our iniquities, and we have forsaken your commandments. So Ezra numbers himself with the guilty people in solidarity. He bears their guilt as his own before God. And friends, that is exactly what Jesus did for us who trust him. Isaiah said he was numbered with the transgressors. He was numbered, counted with the transgressors. He bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. Jesus is the greater Ezra. Jesus wasn't guilty of anything. He wasn't guilty of our sin. But he goes before the Father and he says, you put that on me. And I'll be responsible for that. I'll take the blame and I'll take the punishment. 
and he intercedes. And as a result, he is cut off out of the land of the living. But rose again, rose again to life. And so shall we if we trust in him. For the believer in Christ, even though your present sins are scandalous, it is also true that in Christ they are all forgiven by God. No matter what they are. Because we're not saved by becoming righteous people. We're saved by the righteous one, Jesus, who dies for our unrighteousness. We are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, and by nothing else. And that's humbling, but that's also freeing. But the story's not over yet. There is conviction of sin. There's contrition to the God who is merciful and gracious. And there's one more part of this account of repentance, and that is the fruit of repentance. I borrow that phrase from John the Baptist, who told the Pharisees who were coming to him for baptism in the Jordan River, and he said, you need to bear fruit in keeping with repentance. In other words, if you're truly sorry for your sin, if you are looking for a Savior, if that repentance in real, is real, then you will seek to stop doing that sin and conform your life to God's good and perfect will. Those would be fruits that are in keeping with repentance. They show that it's real. And that's what the people did in chapter 10. We won't read all of it, but we'll get the important facts from verses 1 through 5. While Ezra prayed and made confession of sin, weeping and casting himself down before the house of God, a very great assembly of men, women, and children gathered to him out of Israel, for the people wept bitterly. And Shechaniah, the son of Jehiel, of the sons of Elam, addressed Ezra. Now this is the people talking. We have broken faith with our God and have married foreign women from the peoples of the land. But even now, there is hope for Israel. In spite of this, there is grace. Therefore, let us make a covenant with our God to put away all these wives and their children according to the counsel of my Lord and of those who tremble at the commandment of our God, and let it be done in according to the law. Arise, for it is your task, and we are with you. Be strong and do it. Then Ezra rose and made the leading priests and Levites and all Israel take an oath that they would do as had been said. So they took the oath. And the rest of the chapter records how they followed through. How are we to understand that? <clears throat> We've got men with wives who are, who are idol worshipers. They realize it's wrong to have married them. And their repentance, their fruit in keeping with repentance, was to divorce those wives so that they could separate from the abominations of the people in a clean break which no doubt was heart-wrenching for everybody involved. It meant the tearing apart of marriages. There were even children involved. And it turns out there were so many marriages like this that it took three months to complete the process of evaluation of every marriage to, to, to see who needed to do this. And here's another place where we might be tempted to say, now that sounds extreme. In fact, that seems to violate God's intention for marriage, that it be till death do us part. And it doesn't fit into either of the cases in which God permits divorce, which we know from the New Testament. Most people agree that those two grounds are abandonment by a spouse or sexual immorality by a spouse. This doesn't fit into those categories. And yet here we have this proposal that they divorced their foreign wives en masse, and even Ezra, the expert in the law, agrees with it. So how are we to understand that? Well, it seems this whole thing is a reminder of how sin can create situations that put people into seemingly no-win situations. On the one hand, 
God's will is not to divorce, so they shouldn't divorce. But on the other hand, God's will is also that they not be married to idolaters. In fact, Deuteronomy 7 is a very explicit command that they shall not be married to these women. You shall not intermarry with them, giving your daughters to their sons or taking their daughters for your sons, for they would turn away your sons from following me to serve other gods. So if you divorce your wives, that's wrong. And if you stay with your wives, that's wrong. (laughs) Classic rock in a hard place. But sin does that. Sin complicates life. Crazy ways. It sometimes makes it look like there's no way out, no solution. Every option has some downside. Every option has something wrong with it. So what do you do? Well, they chose divorce because when they weighed the two options, staying married to idolaters was worse than separating from them. And here's why that was the right call. Remember the circumstances. This wasn't just something like a Christian married to a non-Christian. Even the New Testament doesn't require a spouse to divorce in that situation. 1 Corinthians 7.13 says, If any woman has a husband who is an unbeliever and he consents to live with her, she should not divorce him. So this isn't just about a non-Christian married to a Christian or an Israelite married to a Moabite. There's something bigger going on. And what's going on is bigger is This is a national sin of the Jewish people. These are God's chosen people. And as a people, as a nation, they're to keep themselves from idols, remain distinct and devoted to the true God. And they haven't done that. And now their very existence as the people of God is at stake. Ezra's not kidding when he says, you know, it would be within your rights, Lord, to just consume us. Something's got to be done here. So desperate times called for desperate measures. They chose the lesser of the two evils. They divorced their wives. Because at least that decision had some support from Deuteronomy 24.1 in which Moses allowed for divorce in some unspecified situations. But they knew for sure that Deuteronomy 7 says this is wrong and you shouldn't be married to them. So they chose what seemed to be the closest that they could get to obeying God and and having their allegiance to Him. They chose faithfulness to the Lord over keeping their wives, even though it was going to be heart-wrenching. Now, we don't know any more details about what happened to those wives and to their children, but I'd like to think that what happened to them was what like, like what happened to Hagar and Ishmael. You know the story from Genesis. Sarah didn't like um, this this woman who wasn't really the, the true uh, heir of the promise. She, I, I, she didn't want Ishmael being the guy who's going to inherit everything. She said, "Get rid of these. Get rid of this woman and her son." And and so Abraham consents, sends her out into the wilderness. Well, it turns out that they found a home that God provided for them, and Ishmael became his own nation. It would be like God to do that for all these wives and their children because God is generous, even to those who don't know him. I think probably something like that happened. But the takeaway here is that real repentance starts with conviction. It turns into contrition, and then it's demonstrated by action. And sometimes that action is going to hurt a lot. Jesus acknowledged that when he said, if your eye causes you to sin, tear it out. Throw it away. It's better for you to enter life with one eye than with two eyes to be thrown into the hell of fire. Sometimes putting away your sin feels like gouging out an eye. What do we want more? That's the question. Which one do we want more? Do we want our sin or do we want our Savior? A renewed person wants the Savior more. And we want to get rid of anything that hinders our joy in Him. Let me just close with two final observations from chapter 10. One is for parents of wayward children, and the other is for anyone who struggles with guilt 
over things you'd consider huge failures in your life. So let me address the parents of wayward children first. And I'm thinking of children in teens and older adults, maybe, who are walking in a way that brings you sorrow. There's this long list of names at the end of the chapter, starting in verse 18. It goes to the end. And these are all men who had married foreign women. They were all part of the scandal. And that list includes, almost at the front of the line, some of the sons of Jeshua, the son of Josadak. Now, Jeshua was a key guy in the renewing of God's community in Jerusalem. He was the high priest. He was one of the first wave of returnees from Babylonia. He was the spiritual leader of Jerusalem. He got this thing going, along with some others. So here's this godly, zealous guy. But then we learn that some of those who were involved in the scandal were sons or descendants of Jeshua. So their godly heritage didn't prevent them from falling into scandalous sin. But even though they were on the brink of disaster in their scandal, the Lord convicted them through the word and after conviction, contrition, and then repentance in action. Here's why that's encouraging for parents of wayward children. It means that your child's scandalous living is no guarantee that there won't be a future repentance. There is hope for our kids while they live. Either through the word that you sowed into their lives when they were growing up in your house, or through a word that's going to come one day through an Ezra. God is able to transform anyone's life. Repentance is the gift of God, and He can give it to anyone. We don't make our children's repentance our ultimate hope, because that hope is in Christ alone. But we can pray for our children and trust them into God's hands. His arm is not too short to save. He did it for the sons of Jeshua. They repented. J.C. Ryle said generations ago, the child of many prayers is seldom cast away. Now some encouragement for anyone who struggles with guilt over what you'd consider huge failures in your life. There aren't really any small ones if you look at them from God's perspective. But experientially, there are some that weigh on our souls more than others, and they have greater consequences, perhaps lifelong consequences. And so we're aware of it, and it wears on us. Again, we look at this long list of names at the end. God has recorded for all time the names of men who were guilty of scandalous sin, of an appalling deed. And when I first read this list, I thought, wow, how sad for those guys to be called out like that. To be remembered as the guilty ones. Poor Uri and Abdi and Ewell and a bunch of other names. The scandal is the only thing they're going to be known for. What a way to go down in history. But then I thought more and I realized, wait a minute. That's not the only thing they're known for. <laughs> They're also known as those who repented of their sin. They're the ones who did the hard thing, excruciating thing. They put away their wives and their kids in some cases. They turned to the Lord because they wanted more. They wanted to be faithful to Him, whatever it cost. And that means they're on the list of the redeemed. They are the remnant chosen by grace. And so are you 
if you've been forgiven through faith in Christ. Great sinners have a greater Savior. Do you have regrets? Sure you do. We all do. So did the people on this list. But the banner over our lives as believers is not condemned. It is counted righteous in Christ. That's who we are. God is keeping a bigger list than the last verses in this chapter. It's called the Lamb's Book of Life. And if your name is in it, no matter how scandalous your sins are, past, present, or future, that list keeps you. God is saying you are counted righteous in Christ. So when the guilt rises up, say, yeah, it's wrong. I'm convicted. I humble myself. I'm going to be contrite about this. I'm going to seek whatever I need to do to put this away. But I'm going to remember another thing, that God is merciful. And he's put me down on his list. Righteous in Christ. And therefore, the object of his everlasting love. The rhythm of the Christian life is continually repenting and believing the gospel. And that's what genuine renewal looks like. Let's pray. We thank you, Lord, for your grace your mercy to sinners. That your arm is not too short to save. Thank you for Jesus who bore it all for us, the punishment. Help us to live this day without condemnation, but with gratefulness. And in that gratefulness, to seek holiness because we love you, not because we have to. And we want to be renewed after the image of our creator. And Lord, would you continue to do that? Would you accelerate that in us? We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Stand and sing in response.